the transmission of the oral law, I'm slightly biased in the matter, but I do believe it's the most pivotal presentation of the entire seminar. Ah. <laughs> While the rest of the staff are uh, still in breakfast, I can get away with that statement. You see, till now, I think a lot of effort has been invested in validating the document that you and I know as the Torah scroll. Would you agree that's probably an accurate statement? Yeah. See, what I'm about to do is throw that away. I'll explain what I mean. Chaim and Becky. Chaim sitting at the breakfast table reading his newspaper and cup of coffee. And Becky answers the phone. Yes? Really? I don't believe it. Oh, thank you so much. I can't wait to tell him. Puts the phone down. Chaim, I've got to tell you. Chaim, what do you want? Chaim, you've got to listen to this. Chaim. Your therapist says you're cured. <laughs> what? Chaim, what do you mean what? 20 years. 20 years of therapy we've been refinancing. You're cured. Cured? No, it can't be. No, no, no. Chaim, take a, take a hold of yourself. What's the matter with you? You don't understand. You're cured. You're cured. No, you don't understand. Yesterday, I was Napoleon. Today, I'm nobody. <laughs> Till today, the Torah, the Torah scroll has validation. Forgive me, I'm going to invalidate it. How can that be? <coughs> because when we stood at Mount Sinai, we did not get one Torah. We got two Torahs. A written and an oral. Can we prove that the written Torah came with an oral transmission? Can we prove rationally from the Torah scroll itself that it can't possibly be intended for the reader to take seriously. That's part of this presentation. So we're going to look at seven things this morning. Number one, define the oral law. Number two, we're going to ask ourselves, can we prove that the written Torah came with an oral Torah? And that without the oral Torah, the written is meaningless. Number three, we're going to look at how the oral Torah was transmitted. And four, if the information that we have on transmission is accurate, how is it possible that we can have differing opinions, permitted, forbidden, kosher, not kosher, all in the same text of the Talmud? Number five, we want to guarantee that the oral transmission was transmitted accurately without any change. Can you prove that? What were the mechanisms? And number six, I'm not sure if we'll have time for number six, but is there evidence that before the oral transmission was put in writing in the form of the Talmud, which was 1300 years after the oral transmission was given, so it was orally transmitted without anything in writing for 1300 years, how can you prove that we were practicing it before it was written down? Perhaps when the rabbis wrote down the Talmud, the oral law, they were inventing it then. And this was not part of the transmission. How do you know we were practicing it before then? Is there evidence? And lastly, we're going to ask the obvious question. God, wh you know, why didn't you just incorporate the oral transmission in the written document? Just put the, whatever's missing, put it in there. Why do you have to rely on an oral transmission? So number one, what is the oral law? Basically, if you're taking notes on this lecture, and you want to share your notes with someone who is not here, or someone who, your spouse or friend who's still asleep, will they be able to fully grasp the lecture from your notes alone? What will they be reliant on? Your interpretation. They need you to explain your notes, because maybe there's an asterisk here and a code there and some color codes that you're not, they're not familiar with your system of note-taking. So without you explaining orally what was going on, they may not be able to make full sense of the notes. In the example given of Rabbi Shimshim Rafael Hirsch, the Torah scroll are headlines, no details. The details is the oral law. When we stood at Sinai 3,310 years ago, we received an oral and a written transmission. The written is the scroll we have, and the oral is really halacha. Halacha is usually translated as 
Law. Actually, it's a very poor translation. Does the word law in English associate with flexibility, all sorts of options and possibilities, or does the word law suggest rigidity, black and white? Black and white. Absolutely. Let's, let's hold that off for a moment. Shelve it in your mind, because we're going to come back to halacha. But the purpose of the entire written oral transmission is to enable whoever's got access to it to come up with the word halacha. Halacha means, from the word lech, direction. How to go, where to go, what to do. I need to know, God, what do you want me to do as a Jew, receiving your will in any situation, whether it's in a family situation, a relationship, a financial situation, a medical situation, how to deal with this kid, I need to know the direction to go in. So that was transmitted for 1300 years, orally, no writing. Finally, it was put in the form of what we call the Mishnah and the, the, the Gomorrah, which in combination means the Talmud. So the oral law are all the details. But how can you prove that from the written document? Let's ask ourselves, the written document consists of two parts. A storyline and 630 instructions. Five books of Moses is a very simple description of a storyline, number one, and 613 instructions throughout the entire storyline, with no apparent sequence. Question. The storyline is simple. You've got Genesis, creation of the world, Noah and the flood. Then you've got the story of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel and Leah, and the twelve tribes the forming of the Jewish nation, they go down to Egypt and you're already into the book of Exodus where we become slaves and we come out of Egypt with Moses and went to the desert for 40 years and that takes care of the rest of the other books and we're already finished the five books of Moses. It's a fairly simple storyline in skeleton form. But all the mitzvahs, the instructions of the Torah are 613. Let's hear a couple of examples. What are some of the most famous examples of the 613 mitzvahs? And ask ourselves, can we understand God's will from the document? Tefillin. Yeah, we've had that. The, the, the Torah itself only tells us in Deuteronomy 6 that you shall wear these phylacteries, tefillin, we don't know what tefillin really are, on your head and on your arms. And it says between your eyes, actually, but have you ever seen a Jew wear tefillin actually right here? We always wear it up here, above the hairline. Well, I'm sure about mine, but... <laughs> Question... Where did you get that information from? How do you know it's supposed to be black boxes made out of leather? How do you know what parchment to put in there? There are four parchments taken from different places in the Torah. They're not all in the same place. What's another example where the Torah gives us an instruction, but when we look, there's no details? You shouldn't um, um, cook a kid in its mother's milk. Okay, that's a good one. That's a very good one. Do not boil a kid in its mother's Milk. What, what's it referring to? All the dietary laws of milk and meat. Now let's look at this carefully. It appears three times in the Torah, in Exodus 23-24, and later on as well. Question. What does the word chalev mean? Milk. Now, when you look at a Sefer Torah, when you look at uh, a Torah scroll, are there voweling? Do you see the vowels? No vowels. You will never see any vowels in the Sefer Torah. How do you spell, what are the letters of Chalev Imo? What are the letters of Chalev? Chet, Lamed, Vet. Is there any other word that you are familiar with that that combination of letters is? Chalev, Fat. So when you're looking at the word in the Torah, how do you know how to read this word? Does it read Chalev Imo, the milk of the mother, or does it mean Chalev Imo, fat of the mother? And we've got all the dietary rules completely wrong. There should be a division of meat and fat. I think some of these might like that one. But the point is, we don't even know how to read the words of the Torah unless we know what the vowels are. Where do we know what the vowelings are? It's not in the Torah. How about love your neighbors yourself? That's a pretty reasonable one. The whole world adopted that one. <coughs> and what happens if you don't like yourself? How much do you have to love your neighbor? <laughs> what happens if you really hate yourself? What happens if you're suicidal? Now, what can you do to your neighbor in the name of the Torah? Yeah. I'll never forget coming to a class on the 26th floor of a uh, Manhattan building. Came out there, there was a, a rope tied to one of the doors next to the elevator. Went right to the end of the corridor. And there's a man there with a rope around his waist. And he's starting to hang himself out the window. I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to commit suicide. I said, look, I don't want to interfere with your free will. 
But let me give you an education. You're supposed to put the rope around your neck. <laughs> so he said to me, I tried that, but I couldn't breathe. <laughs> Suicide is very serious. <laughs> it's only a joke. <laughs> the Torah says, you love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. The whole world has adopted this. The Christian world, Jewish world. But does it really mean what it says? It can't. So where's the information that dictates that loving ourselves is what's assumed here? And that's the training for loving others. It's not in the written. What's another example where we see the Torah is not self-explanatory? Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Very good. How How many times did you see a Jew who beat up another Jew have his arm amputated in based in? Or have his eye removed? <laughs> right? Is it part of Jewish education that when your kid beats up one of your kids, he gets beaten up? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. How about Shabbos? It says in Exodus 20, it's part of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. And Exodus 35 tells us the consequences. What are the consequences if you don't keep the Sabbath holy? Remember the Shabbos day to keep it holy. Six days you shall work and complete all your work and the seventh day shall be dedicated to Hashem, your God. You shall not do any type of malacha work. Now the Torah was given on which day of the week? It was a Shabbos. That was very good timing because we're told in Exodus 35 that on six days you may work, but the seventh day shall be holy for you, a day of complete rest. Whoever does any work, malacha, on that day shall be put to death. So we've got a whole week till next Saturday to learn what's called work. Right? So, if we could do a quick scan of the entire Torah, what details will we discover that defines what is work? Zero. This is suicide. What, what is going on? Are you... Are you are you expecting me to take this document seriously? So, whoever wrote the document, the author obviously intended that you couldn't possibly understand his will from his instructions. These are not instructions, these are headlines without the details. I'm going to hold off questions for the end on because we started very late and I have to finish on time, but I'll be very happy to take all, all your questions uh, next year. <laughs> if there's, if, for next year, next, next time you come. <laughs> <laughs> after, after the lecture you know you can go through any example you want the blowing of the shofar no one tells us it's supposed to be a ram's horn it just says you shall have this as a day of blowing yoim teruah and how does it mean maybe we're all supposed to go <laughs> right it's a day of blowing I mean <laughs> a day of blowing everyone in shul blow teruah shlorim we don't know. The Torah doesn't tell us any details. I'm not trying to be comical. I'm just making a simple observation that it doesn't make sense. You want me to take this seriously? Where are you coming from? How about this? Kibbut Ava'im. What's not clear about honoring your father and your mother? Number five in the Decalogue. What's not clear about that? How do you say and in Hebrew? Vav, right? Is there any other meaning that Vav has? It can also mean or. So let's reread this. You shall honor your father or your mother. <laughs> or how about the next one? You shall curse, you shall not curse your father or your mother. Maybe it means only and, which means your only violation if you curse both of them. But if dad's not here and you only curse mom, you're not in violation. We don't, we can't, we don't know what's going on over here. How do you know which Vav is being referred to? Is it the Vav which tells us and, or the Vav that tells us or? No explanation. The conclusion is very clear. Whoever authored this document, if he wants the reader to take it seriously, there must be information elsewhere that explains what he means. In the analogy we gave just earlier, that the Torah really are the notes on the lecture, the oral transmission is the lecture. This is strange. You have the most bought book in history, the Bible. 
in every single hotel room. It's the most printed document in history. Anyone who takes this seriously, Jew or Gentile, intentionally or unintentionally, is intellectually dishonest. It's a book that cannot be understood. When we start analyzing just the surface, who can possibly understand a single one of the 630 instructions, even the most fundamental, love your neighbor, keep the Sabbath holy. It's not self-explanatory. Ladies and gentlemen, the non-Jews translated our Torah. They translated our notes. Remember Rabbi Sushar the Septuagint, the first translation into Greek? They have our notes. They missed the lecture. <laughs> we still have the lecture. Let's move on to number three. How was the oral law transmitted? This is very interesting. When I gave this presentation in YU to the faculty, it took six weeks of an hour and a half each presentation to take care of this part of it. So I'm going to do this in a few minutes. It's going to be a skeleton form. That's okay. I'm fast. <laughs> okay. The, uh, the transmission of the oral law. How was it transmitted? And then we're going to get to the next question, really important. How do you guarantee the transmission is accurate all throughout history? It was transmitted in the following way. If you were to open up a Sefer Torah, you will find that there are gaps. I haven't got time to explain all these points in full. But these gaps over here, over here, over here, these gaps are indications that there's a change in subject matter. And that one should be con contemplating, considering the details of the oral transmission that the children were taught by their parents, that the students were taught by their teachers, based on that. Rav Sadia Gaon, has, uh, uh, in the Egeris of Sadia Gaon, has the following statement. That when the Jewish people were in the desert, every single day, every father, mother, taught a portion of the scroll to their children. In fact, it was Moses who legislated the weekly reading of the Torah because we have 54 portions divided up throughout the entire year so that each year there would be a weekly reading and each day we would study one-seventh of the weekly portion. So we have a system that each day child would learn one-seventh and any questions, daddy would fill in the details, the lecture, because these are only the notes. According to Rambam's son, that's my monitor's son, Avram, the Jewish people did not spend the entire day studying the document, the scroll. Instead, in the afternoons, they actually left the camp and went into the mountains and the desert and contemplated, meditated, had conversations with God and talked to God about how can I incorporate the information you gave into my life. That was the original form of prayer, spontaneous conversation. 1-800-ALMIGHTY No, cool waiting. God doesn't have caller ID either, so it was, a, it was direct, direct line. And they would talk about the details. God, you know, I just learned today the laws of kashras, the laws of keeping kosher. Help me to identify what's kosher, what's not. Help me to remember the information. And whatever it is, they would pray. And this would be the greatest demonstration that they want to perform God's will. Over time, 1300 years, we successfully transmitted the information to the time of the Roman Empire when Rabbi Yehuda Nasi saw that we were losing grip of the oral transmission and therefore they put it in writing for the first time in the form of the Mishnah the Mishnah is made up of six sections you can buy it today, it's in art scroll form and each section is divided up to these are the sections, 63 of them total they're known as tractates, Masechdot each one deals with a different category of the 613 instructions every tractate is divided into numbered chapters and every chapter is divided into numbered paragraphs. Anyone wants to look afterwards, later on, will find an example of it over here. It covers every aspect of living. All of the 613 pertaining to agriculture, this section. Anything to do with seasons, Shabbat, Passover, Purim, whatever it is, in this section. Marriage, divorce, relationships, over here. Nazikin, damages, torts, judges, witnesses, claims. Real estate, property, business, over here. And the last two deal with temple service. The Mishnah was written in very cryptic language. 
it was written in such a way that when you start reading it, very often it would actually start off with a question. Now, if you're going to have a lecture, would it be fair to start off with a question, or would it be more fair to give some information than ask questions? I can only deal with a question if I've got information first. The mission doesn't work that way. We're not interested in spoon-feeding. Because what's the greater, more effective way to communicate information? For me to spoon-feed, or for you to hear a question? What did I just do? (laughs) And the reason why is because it engages the mind. And it makes a person think. The purpose of writing the oral law in the form of the Mishnah was not to put the oral law in writing. It was, in, it was put in writing in such a way that you were dependent on an oral transmission from your Rebbe, from your parents, to explain the Mishnah. The Mishnah is not self-explanatory. So it was some of the details, but not enough to fully understand it. And within 300 years, the Talmud had to be... The Gemara was written on the Mishnah. The Gemara, now known as the Talmud, you can get it in art scroll. On one page is the Hebrew, got the English on the other side. The Talmud starts over here and gives a full explanation, unloading the information in the coded language of the Mishnah, up here. On a single page of Talmud, you will have many address systems. You see these colors, they're sending you to different parts of the page, especially that one up there. Do you know what that is? It's called Ayin Mishpat Ner Mitzvah. The purpose of that address system, this margin over here, is that wherever you have a halakhic ruling, a decisive, conclusive ruling from the discussions that take place over here, it's noted up there where you need to look for this ruling in the codes. Who are the codes? For example, and there's no time to go through all of them, Maimonides, you've heard of Maimonides. He took all 613 mitzvahs, divided them into 14 major sections and 83 subsections so that you could find any information that you wanted on a Talmudical Talmudical discussion in a particular section. Why did he do that? Because in the Talmud itself, guess what? There is so much cross-referencing in this discussion over here questioning the information in the Mishnah, why do you say it this way? What about this verse over here? What about a different Mishnah over there that seems to contradict this? The cross-referencing is so enormous that you're literally being referred to almost all the other tractates of the entire spectrum of the Talmud on a single page. Which means if you want to be expert as a Jew in any one area of the Torah, you'd have to be expert in the entire Talmud. And so Maimonides made a major contribution by categorizing everything into subject matter. He dealt with all 613 mitzvahs until the code of Jewish law. Here's the code of Jewish law. Losing my transparencies. The code of Jewish law. The code of Jewish law. The Code of Jewish Law. It's a small volume, it comes in nine parts, I'm going to show you one edition. And there, it doesn't deal with all 613, it deals only with the 270 or so mitzvahs which still apply nowadays. It's this small volume over here. (laughs) Now the Code of Jewish Law part is the bold print here. And here's the uh, slightly uh, smaller print on the rest of the page. And in case you were wondering, why is it that there are so many yeshiva students who wear glasses... This is probably the reason. (laughs) Super commentaries. You will find every single principle that governs every detail of life in the Code of Jewish Law, based on the discussions in the Talmud, based on the principles of the Mishnah, based upon the verses in the Torah. So what you really have here is, as time continues, there's an unfolding of more information to the point that this of nine volumes, the first three deal with waking up in the morning till you go to bed at night. The Chavetz Chaim, the saintly Chavetz Chaim, wrote a six-volume work which just discusses the first volume. And he included all the super commentaries in his one commentary. This is in full translation today. So that's in skeleton form, the transmission. But that's only the technical side of it. Let's try and understand, how did, how did the sages, how did the Torah guarantee 
that the information will remain accurate over the first 1300 years that it was only oral. Do you remember the game telephone at parties? In England we call it Chinese whispers. You have a long circle, right? You say, one person starts off with uh, whatever phrase he wants, whispers into his ear, the ear of the person next, and it goes right round the whole circle, and by the time it comes to the end, everyone has a great laugh, because it's so different, right? So how do you guarantee that for 1300 years, the party of Judaism doesn't laugh about the changes? It's exactly the same. How do we guarantee that? I'm going to share with you 21 mechanisms, there are probably many more, but I'm going to share with you 21 of the major mechanisms. You see, we're not playing telephone. What would happen if you did play telephone? You changed the rules slightly. Let's say, if you didn't pass the information on exactly as you heard it, we're going to kill you. I'm only, you know, just suggesting it. I'm not going to play that game. But what would happen if we would tell you, you're losing your eternity, and you're going to get electrocuted? Well, that's just a ridiculous example. You see, the game telephone is just a game. We're not playing a game. These are God's words. So we're not going to meddle with God's words. And anyone who does can't be part of the club anymore. So it's interesting. I'm going to share with you very briefly 21 mechanisms that we have been able to rely upon for the accuracy of the transmission. And then we're going to ask the more important question. How do you explain the possibility of diversity of opinions? If there's an accurate transmission, how is it possible to have different judgments? So number one of 21... It's Deuteronomy 4, verse 1 to 2, the Torah says, Don't add or delete a single letter from the scroll. You're not allowed to change anything that's already in the original document. And besides that, mechanism number 2, Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, there's a command not to add or delete any of the 613 mitzvahs. You cannot play around with the instructions. They have to remain as they are. Now remember, you've learnt already that the, every single Jewish family has a mitzvah to write their own Torah scroll. Which means, if anyone were to come along and make a change, what would they have to do? They would have to find access to every single scroll, wherever we are. And one of God's wonderful sense of humor, if you may allow me to say, is that in the scattering of the exile, Jews are all over the world. And it's so much harder for anyone to tamper with our Torah scroll. Number three, Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22, what happens if someone comes along and says, I've got a new testimony to add to the old one, and to prove that God has sent me, I'm going to do something really bizarre, I'm going to walk on water. What do you do to that person? If they come and say anything in the name of God, and they do wonders and they come about, and then tell you, by the way, God told me last night that he wants you to move Shabbos over to Sunday. We know that's not true. Because the document says you can't add, you can't delete, and you can't listen to anyone who comes and says, I've got a new testimony directly from God, and I'll prove it with these wonders. That's how we know. No alterations are permitted. Number four, Exodus 19, verse 9. Very powerful. God says, and this Exodus 19 is just prior to Mount Sinai, to the revelation. The greatest event that ever took place in world history. And what, is, what, what does God actually say to Moses? The words are, God said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in the thick cloud, so that the nation will hear, I'm speaking with you. So that the entire nation will hear, we're speaking, that Moses is speaking with God, God's speaking with Moses. Why? Because God wants to empower Moses with the authority in front of the entire Jewish people, that he is the one authorized to share the oral transmission. Finishes off the verse, And in you as well, you also, they will believe forever. This is a partial prophecy that states that no matter where in time you are, there will always be Jews who are faithful to the details of the oral transmission as Moses received from Sinai. We have withstood the test of time. Number 5, Deuteronomy 17, verse 8 to 11. What about empowering future generations, future leadership, with the authority to decide legal cases based on new situations which are not described in the Torah itself? 
So you'll see there in, verse, in verse, verses 8 to 11 in chapter 17, where the words are very clearly, God is saying, whoever are the sages of that generation who have received the transmission, an unbroken chain, to listen to them. I'll give you the exact quote. According to the instructions which they guide you, Mishpat, and the statutes which they tell you, you shall do Don't move from the word which they tell you, not to the right, not to the left. It's referring to listening to the conclusive decisions that come from the principles already laid in the oral transmission. Number six, Deuteronomy 17, verse 12. To ensure total loyalty to the transmission, any sage who denies the validity, what do we do to him? If he comes along and says, I've got my own interpretation, not based upon the principles that are part of the transmission. It's based upon perhaps cultural leanings, or this is my education, this is how my parents brought me up. But not based on the principles that are inside the document. The principles that are inside the oral transmission. Such a person we kill. We don't just excommunicate him, we actually kill him. If people know that they're going to be killed and it, for tampering with our transmission, what's the likelihood that we're going to have an amazing number of people coming and telling us? So we're very, very sensitive, maybe super sensitive, obsessive about the accuracy. Number seven, the Sanhedrin and the legal authorities throughout history meticulously guarded the oral transmission of the written Torah by legislating safeguards. So you've, you've probably heard of all sorts of things which you say, oh, the rabbis made that up. Right? For example, on the Sabbath, if you own a store on Madison Avenue, are you allowed, according to the Torah, are you allowed to go on Saturday morning, open up your store and do business? Yes or no? And the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely. The Torah does not forbid it. The rabbis forbade it. The Torah doesn't say anywhere that you're not allowed to open up your store. And I'm referring to the oral transmission. The oral transmission does not say that out of the 39 categories of forbidden activities that God communicated to Moses, one of them is not doing business on Sabbath. So why did the rabbis stop it? They said, well, you know what? The problem about doing business on Shabbos is like this. <coughs> to go to your store on Shabbos, you've got to have inventory, receipts, documents, contracts. It's going to involve writing. Writing is one of the 39 forbidden activities. So we're going to forbid, forbid going to work because of writing. Wait a minute. God has a lot of intelligence. Why didn't he just say, don't go to business? And the answer is, the rabbis aren't really inventing anything new. You see... Gentlemen, if, if your wife's anniversary passes by, or birthday passes by, and she has to go, Do you know what night it is tonight? <laughs> if I forget such an important date, what's that a reflection of in my relationship to my spouse? My wife's not here tonight. <laughs> the point is this. God says, you know what, let's have a date. Every Saturday, just you and me. We're going to spend time together talking about our accomplishments, our history. We're going to study together, pray, praise. The rabbis saw that we were losing the concept of intimacy that Shabbos means for the Jew and our Creator. How could a Jew go to work on Shabbos? How could a person violate the relationship by doing something which is their personal agenda on the night which is an anniversary of a very special Communion. So the rabbis aren't inventing as much as they are reclaiming a relationship which we were losing grip of. There are many other examples, I, I won't get into too many, a very brief one, for example, the blessings. Do we have a lot of blessings in Jewish liturgy? Right? For going on a journey, for seeing a rainbow, right? You see the new moon. Uh, when you get up in the morning for your eyes, for washing hands, we have a, a three-page blessing for the sun, for every single type of food, there's another blessing. Every category of food, there's another blessing. Are they mandated by the Torah? No. There's only one blessing in the entire Torah which is mandatory. Which one's that? Deuteronomy 8. When you eat and you're satisfied, thank God. And we're referring to 
the bread only. So where do all the blessings before eating come from? The rabbis invented it. What did didn't God figure out that we should make a blessing before we eat? Why only after bread? And the answer is, God basically says, listen, I'm only asking you to thank me for, for the meal, but do I have to tell you to show gratitude when the meal's in front of you? Or do you just go right in without saying anything? Isn't, doesn't the relationship behoove that we should express appreciation? So the rabbi saw that we were losing grip of the intimacy in the relationship which this mitzvah really was reflective of. And that's when they legislated actual blessings. But until that point, guess what? How do we thank God for a, a piece of bread before the meal? In our own words, one in a hundred almighty. You just said it in your own language, any words you wanted. But we're losing the spontaneity of talking to God. So they legislated a blessing for water, for our eyes, for our back, for our clothes, every day. Number eight. Let's look at the integrity of the transmitters. What was their integrity? Who are we talking about? What type of people are they? We have an unbroken train, chain of transmission. Scholars whose caliber of righteousness and scholarship has to be impeccable. You know, we're told in the Talmud Sukkah, page 28a Rabbi Eliezer, who was the who was the Talmud of Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai Rabbi Eliezer says, all my life no man ever arrived in the academy for studying Torah earlier than myself nor did I ever leave someone at night on their own I would make sure to close up with them and accompany them home I never said a word of profane speech my entire life wow Never swore. I have never in my life said anything which I did not hear from my teachers. And then the Talmud gives us a list of what his Rebbe said. And what his Rebbe said. Now I want to ask you an interesting question. How many of us here in this room have taken a bachelor's or a master's or a PhD? Madam, could you re recall for us the name of your professor? Which professor? Uh, in any one of your courses. Professor Hirsch. Professor Hirsch. And uh, ma'am, could you do us the service also of telling us the name of his professor? Interesting. Or their professor. You see, from Moses to the elders, to the prophets, to the men of the great assembly, to the authors of the Mishnah, to the authors, authors of the Talmud, all the way through time, I'm sorry, I just couldn't fit it on a bigger slide. All the way from Rambam, all the way down, it's the wrong side. <laughs> we have an unbroken chain of where our information comes from, from Moses all the way down to this century. Every single good student in the major Talmudical yeshivas today can tell you who their Rebbe is, who their Rebbe's Rebbe, and they'll be able to tell you who their Rebbe is, all the way back to Maimonides, to the time of the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva, to the time of Moses. An unbroken chain of transmission. And what's the caliber of righteousness that we're referring to? I'll give you some examples. You know, the Satmar Rebbe, I may have shared this in a different presentation, the Satmar Rebbe of 30 years ago, an unusually righteous individual, a tremendous tzaddik. On one occasion, it's about 30 years ago, a gentleman came to him, sobbing, uncontrollably. He's going into foreclosure, he lost his job, and his wife has been diagnosed with cancer and they're trying to marry off a daughter. And he needs help to carry him through the next few months. And the Rebbe gave him a sizable sum for those days, $6,000 cash. He thanked him profusely and left. It was a matter of minutes later that the sexton, the attendant to the Rebbe came in. says, Rebbe, did that gentleman gave the description, did he come to you asking for anything? And the Rebbe affirmed, yes. He says, oh no, he's a charlatan, he's a fake. And the Rebbe says, thank God, it's not true. Baruch Hashem, it's not true. He was so relieved that all the pain that was described did not exist. His wife, if he had one, was not diagnosed with cancer. And he himself perhaps didn't have that 
Now, later on might have been upset about the money, but what was the gut reaction? The Chavetz Chaim, in his 80s, his wife asked him please to put the sukkah right outside the front door of the uh, kitchen, and he erected it. When she came out, she said, you know what? Actually, it would be, be better by the window. <laughs> Didn't say anything, just moved it to where the window was. And it took a while, 85 years old. She came out a second time and said, mm, you were right, it's better by the door. <laughs> he said nothing, just moved it by the door. Now, the yeshiva student who was helping the Chavis Time said, Rebbe, you know, uh, why don't you say, why don't you make up your mind? <laughs> why you co- What's going on over here? He says, you don't understand. If it bothers my wife, it bothers me. But I don't want to anguish her. It was so obvious to him. See, the caliber of all the sages throughout our generations, it was not enough to be brilliant or a genius. That wasn't the qualification. The qualification was righteousness twinned with knowing all the information. Look at the laws according to the Talmud and Maimonides. For a judge, a Jewish judge, what are the qualifications? Only wise and understanding men are appointed to the Sanhedrin. They must be experts in the Torah law with wide breadth of knowledge. They must also know secular subjects like medicine, mathematics, astrology and astronomy. They must also be familiar with magic and idolatry in order to know how to judge such cases. Even a judge for a regular court must possess the following seven qualities. Love of truth, pleasant and likable, unimpeachable, repeat, unimpeachable reputation. All these are specified in the Torah. No one is qualified to act as judge in the Sanhedrin, that's the Supreme Court, or even in a court of three judges, which can be in any local municipality, unless he has been ordained by one of who, who has himself been ordained. Ordained means to receive the transmission and be given the authority to give decisive legal decisions. Moses ordained Joshua by laying his hands upon him and he laid his hands upon him and commissioned him from Numbers chapter 27 verse 23. Likewise, Moses ordained the 70 elders and the divine presence rested upon them. The elders ordained others who in turn ordained their successors. Hence there was an uninterrupted succession of ordained judges reaching back to the tribunal of Joshua, indeed the tribunal of Moses. Today's title, Rabbi, refers to having successfully studied to a level of expertise a particular section of the code of Jewish law. And others who rise to a higher position of, let's say, a judge, means they've mastered entire sections. But the point again is that we are not dependent on anyone giving us this information. Caliber of scholarship, caliber of righteousness. The precision of the transmission, they were so extremely meticulous with the specificity of the exact author of each ruling. It's almost, almost beyond, beyond. Let me quote to you the following from the Talmud. The Talmud in Nidarim, page 8b. Look at how obsessive we were about where we got our information. In order just to make one statement, listen to this. Rabbi Shimon, the son of Zebed, said in the name of Rabbi Yitzhak, the son of Tabla, in the name of Rabbi Chia, Arik of the school of Rabacha, in the name of Rabbi Zeira, in the name of Rabbi Lazer, in the name of Rabbi Hanania, in the name of Rabbi Miasha, on the authority of Rabbi Huda, And then they made the statement. What's going on over here? You're just trying to be humble? No, no, no. I didn't invent this. I got it from my Rebbe, from his Rebbe. This uninterrupted, uninterrupted information till the time that it was written in the Mishnah. From the Mishnah onwards, you didn't need to keep quoting everybody. You know, the finest details of every mitzvah have been observed throughout all the generations. You've seen many examples with a tefillin, with a Torah scroll, and they've been successfully communicated from generation to generation by the Jewish people wherever we have been. Tefillin, sitzit. Shabbos, Kashrus, the same exact details. Passover night, look at Passover night. 
Isn't that amazing? You and I could be sitting at a Passover table, say the night, and there's a child there. And my parents. And in some cases, your grandparents. And in some cases, great-grandparents. Did you ever see your great-grandparent get up somewhere in the middle of the reading of our God and say, What are you doing here? I never remember my parents saying this. I know, what's this? What are you doing tonight? Is there anyone in the Jewish nation, religious or secular, that ever saw a parent or grandparent stand up and say, I never saw any of this before? Sadonite is one of our mechanisms for guaranteeing that the information, the bearers of the torch, the scroll, the legacy will be continued. In Deuteronomy 31 verse 19, every Jew was instructed to write their own Torah scroll. And now it's virtually impossible to falsify the Torah. Because to change it, you'd have to go into the, every Torah scroll throughout the entire world. But it's beyond that. Because look at the intricacies of the oral transmission. The code of Jewish law. Over here, we have another address system, which sends you back to the original information in the Talmud, which had address systems there, which sent you to the other codes. Do you know, there's so much cross-referencing on a single page of Talmud, or the Code of Jewish Law, there's so much cross-referencing, that what would anyone have to do if they wanted to change the transmission? What would they have to do? They have to start a new religion, or... And that's been done, or a different version of Judaism, or change every single Talmudical text. I'll give you an example here. You have one point in the Mishnah which is cross referenced to so many different places throughout the Talmud and Talmudical texts. That if anyone wanted to insert, insert a change in the transmission, it would be immediately obvious. Because it's going to affect the entire fabric of the oral transmission. That's why we're wearing the same tefillin, same kosher laws, milk and meat. It's not meat and fat. I don't know if you were given an example, but do you know, what is the severity of embarrassing another person in public? It's so bad that based in the Jewish law court won't even bother taking that person to court. Because the death penalty is not enough. Kol hamal bin pnei Someone who embarrasses another person in public loses his eternity. Period. Oh my gosh. That's serious business. Was anyone here Saturday morning when the person was reading the Torah and made a few mistakes? What did we do? We corrected him. Have you ever been in a congregation where the rabbi stands up and says, What are you doing? You're embarrassing the poor man. What's the matter with you? Don't you know the severity of embarrassing a person in public? And what's the answer? Don't meddle with our text. If you're going to represent the reading of the Torah text, be so well prepared that you pronounce it perfectly. If you're taking that responsibility, we are even allowed to violate, we're not intending to embarrass you, you're embarrassing yourself by not being prepared sufficiently. But don't mess around with the text. We are that meticulous, and I'll even use the word obsessive, about accuracy. I didn't number you all those 21 points, but you've got 21 mechanisms to help ensure the accuracy of the transmission. So how, do you, how is it possible to have Machalekis? And I've got to finish in 10 minutes, so I'm going to drive it home quickly now. How, we, how is it possible that we've got an entire transmission of accurately transmitted information, so how can there be different opinions? In the Talmud, in the Mishnah, and in the Code of Jewish Law. You'll see discerning opinions. This one says kosher, this one says not kosher. This one says forbidden, permitted. Pure, impure. How is that possible? There are a number of explanations. Let me ask you. When you read the Torah, Exodus 20, Thou shalt not kill. If you are now asked, is it okay to kill another person? What's the answer? It depends. Wait a minute, it says here, Thou shalt not kill. There's (laughs) There's no two ways about that. What about, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. And if you do, you'll be executed. Now, you go to the rabbi and say, am I allowed to do work on the Sabbath? What's the answer? It depends. What's the question? There is no such thing as Jewish law in the sense of rigidity. The word halacha, we said, 
Remember I asked you to show that word? Direction. What direction you're coming from and all the variables, the details that are inside your question will determine the answer. And the answer will be based upon principles having understood the question. But your question, sir, to a judge, even if it's identical to someone else's question, may not be the same question. Because the answer for you may be completely different for another person. You see, halacha, breaking the Sabbath, is a mitzvah if you're saving life. Eating forbidden foods is a mitzvah if it's endangering your health. To kill another person is a mitzvah if it's in self-defense. So whenever you ever see something black and white, that's only in generalities. But it always depends on your personal, specific, detailed scenario. So actually, the word halacha doesn't really translate to Jewish law. Halacha, direction, is, a, is not a one-way street. It's a six-lane highway in both directions. Don't misunderstand me. I'm labelled as an Orthodox rabbi. I'm not going to say everything's permitted, everything's forbidden. That's not what this is about. In the understanding of how the principles govern the law, the outcome, the result, there are six different levels in understanding how Jewish law is applied. There's no argument in all of the Talmud and the codes, there's no argument about the principles, only the applications. And the applications depend on the situation. No two situations are the same. So we have an expression, when you have two different opinions, totally opposite, one rabbi says yes, one says no, one permitted, one forbidden. One kosher, one not kosher. If they both came to their conclusion using the same 13 principles, we didn't discuss them, 13 principles of extrapolating the correct information from the Torah text, through the Mishnah, through the Talmud, through the codes, both views are valid. And depending, according to the morale, the way he explains it, depending on the time and place, circumstances, and specifics of the question, both could be correct for different times, places, circumstances, people. I'll give you a simple example. You go to a class on business ethics. Are you allowed to go into a store and ask the price of a garment with no intent to buy it? You're not allowed. Interesting. Why not? It's considered Geneva Stars. You're, you're being deceptive because the person, the store uh, uh, person on the floor is going to give you attention for what reason? Because they are hoping that you're going to buy. If you absolutely know you're not going to buy anything, it's not permitted to take that person's time. So, a lady comes out of a class listening to that halacha and says, Oh my gosh, my mother wants to take me to a store to buy a bridal gown. I don't know what to do. The class I went to before the business ethics was on honoring parents. And it's so severe, it's called Hamurat Shabachamur, it's the most severe of all the other mitzvahs. And now I come out, how can I go to that store knowing that there's no way I'm going to buy that garment, which only comes up to here, and, and I want to wear a wedding gown on my wedding, I want to wear a modest wedding gown, and it's up to here, and, and my mother, what am I supposed to do? She asked the question, what's the answer? What's the answer? <laughs> the answer is, the answer is, it depends. Listen to the answer. If you absolutely know that if there would be a gown there which you absolutely fall in love with, and with a few adjustments it could be made to be a modest garment, and your mother is willing to pay the $2,000, even though you've already arranged to get one from what's called a gemach, the special loan fund which does it for free, that instead of having to pay thousands of dollars for a wedding gown, you have a beautiful one. And it doesn't cost you anything. And it's passed on to other brides who can't afford. If you absolutely know there's a possibility that if you would fall in love with such a garment, you're not deceiving anyone. You can please your mother and you can, you're not deceiving the... Every single question has to be understood in its right context. This answers a major question. That's why we didn't want it to be in books. Because when you put the Torah in writing, it becomes black and white.
the Torah was never intended to be written. It was only written out of emergency. The Torah wanted that we have the transmission from people who are real. Because what's the greatest communication? Information? Or living example? Which would you prefer? If you could spend a day with Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, one of the greatest sages of our time, passed away recently, would you prefer spend it studying with him? Or would you prefer just walking around the house, watching how he talks to his wife, his children, answers the phone, listens to a stranger at the door, answers a complicated question, which of the two are you going to choose? Even the Talmud says that learning from a role model is greater than studying Torah. Because you're studying Torah from a living Torah. That's the concept. Do you know something? How old is the educational system in America, in England? How old is it? How many old? How well, that's, that's very generous. That's even older than America. But let's say it's 500 years. We've had school system working for about 2,000. Says the Talmud, the day the Jewish school system was set up was a black day in our history. Because instead of the sensitivity of Rebbe Talmud, teacher, student, parent, child, now you have a classroom situation, a yeshiva. And we're worried that you're not going to have enough exposure to real role models. This is the reason, one of the major reasons why the Torah did not want it to be in writing all the details. Only the notes, the lecture we pass down verbally. There are other points to bring out on this concept of machlokes argumentation. I'm going to bring up one more and then we're going to finish off the last question. In Hebrew, what does the word machloket usually translate as? Disagreement. Anything else? Argument? Right. What is the shoresh? What is the grammatical root of the word machloket? Chelek. Thank you. What is the correct translation of the word chelek? Part. Machloket is not division, argumentation. It's a analysis of the parts that make up the whole. The concept of machloket is not right, wrong, yes, no. It's a clarity, clarification process of what are the parts here. So that when we understand all the elements that make up the whole, then we'll understand how to apply the parts to any situation. We have responsa. Responsa means questions and answers of rabbis to people who've asked questions. Of the medieval period alone, I heard this from the person who was the, the brother-in-law of, the, of Rabbi Sassoon in Israel, who passed away and left 100,000 manuscripts of responsa alone of medieval Judaism. Meaning to say that of all the manuscripts that were burned, there were still 100,000 manuscripts which were donated to Hebrew University in, in Jerusalem. 100,000 manuscripts of responsa, tens upon tens of thousands of questions Applying the principles in every possible scenario you can imagine, up until today. Artificial insemination, it's in the Talmud. You're not going to find it in those words, the principles are there. Any question you want to come up with, the principles are already in God's law. People from the Holocaust had, had the most horrific questions. They were answered. A woman was tattooed, who was used as a prostitute, a Jewish woman who was used as a prostitute during the war. And she wanted to take this tattoo off after she remarried. And she didn't want to go to the mikvah with a humiliation. And the rabbi said, this is your dignity. You were a Jew. And you stayed a Jew. You became a Jew afterwards as well. You never let go. That may not be the most typical example. But we have got answers for every single situation. Cloning. Sorry? Cloning. Cloning. I'm, not, I'm not a post I'm not a decider. I wouldn't be able to give you a clarity on that. But you can ask and you will find. Because all the principles are already there. And the business of our sages throughout every generation, here's a beautiful book, actually has samplings of some amazing questions from all the medieval legal advisors up until today. They ask all types of questions. Fascinating reading. And this leads us to the end of the, of the entire...
presentation. Why did God give us an oral law? Why not put it all in writing? One of the reasons we just gave is because we want to live it according to example, not from the books. But there's another reason. And it goes like this. Once there was a king and he wanted to demonstrate his love to the queen as they were about to be married. So what does he do? He gives her a diamond ring and places it on her finger. What does this diamond ring represent? His love for her to the public. But under the chuppah, under the marriage canopy, he spoke a few words in whisper into her ears. Which do you think of the two was more precious to her? Yeah, someone's going to say diamond, right? <laughs> Why? Because when a person speaks words, they speak their mind, their heart. This is who I am. This is what I want you to know that's really from me. This rock on your finger represents my love for you to the rest of the world. But, the real relationship is what we communicate to each other. You know something interesting? I'll just share with you a true story. My father embellished it. Three Jewish women on Broadwalk. Uh, broad no, Broadwalk on, on, in uh, Florida, Miami Beach. Broadwalk, thank you. I'm from England. Mrs. Goldstein, Mrs. Feinberg, and Mrs. Goldberg. And Mrs. Goldstein and Feinberg, they're showing off their diamonds on their hands. And poor Mrs. Goldberg just has one diamond. And Mrs. Goldstein says to Mrs. Feinberg, you know, where do you go when you want your diamond to be polished? Oh, I have an expensive uh, jeweler in uh, 47th Street, New York. Very expensive. But you know what? He's worth it. Where do you go when you want your diamonds polished? Oh, <laughs> well, actually, uh, I have someone in London, very expensive, but we send it with Concord to get it back within a day. She does a beautiful job, beautiful job. And Mrs. Goldberg, what do you do when you want your diamond polished? Oh, I don't bother polishing my diamond, I just throw it away and buy another one. <laughs> God gave us a diamond, the Torah. Don't throw it away. Polish it, it's beautiful. The whole world thinks it's beautiful, even though they can't see the lecture. They never heard it. But more than that, we were under the chuppah at Sinai, and God gave us the oral transmission. He spoke to us in our ears, and it's been transmitted accurately from generation to generation for 3,310 years. And it's still echoing in our ears, kosher. Laws of family purity, prayer, blessings, raising children with Jewish values, tefillin, tzitzit, Shabbos, Yom Tov, bris miller. All the details of every one of our 613 mitzvahs is part of the oral transmission. That's the hallmark of the Jewish nation. If I ask you, for a show of hands, how many people in this room are not born in America? How many people in this room have parents not born in America? How many people in this room have grandparents not born in this country? What's your name, sir? Mark. Mark. It could be that you're a descendant from some Jew who was around the time of the Romans, and they, they crucified or killed him. But fortunately for you, the mother survived, and she escaped with the rest of the family, perhaps to Syria, and there, you are on a direct descendant. You, madam, your name is? Iris. I Iris. It may be, I don't know. It may be that your great-great-great ancestor was somewhere amongst the Greeks and was persecuted or even murdered. But their spouse or child moved to maybe Alexandria and you are a direct descendant from them. And the same will go for you, sir, from Persia or from Czechoslovakia or from the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Inquisition. But we're still here. What's our true identity? What's our real hallmark? The hallmark of a Jew is not the book of the Torah scroll. Because on its own, it doesn't have meaning. It's the observance and practice of the Torah Shvalpeh, the oral transmission, is what makes a Jew part of the continuity from the time of the giving of the Torah until today. We're only a short while away 
from what we claim to be the 6,000 year deadline. Never in our history have we had so much assimilation and ignorance. And on the plus side, never in the last 20 years has there been an explosion of Judaica. Of explaining the oral transmission in almost every language. Today, you've got the Living Torah in translation of Arya Kaplan in English, easy to read. And if you are more computer wild, it's on CD. The art school version has commentaries based on the transmission of the oral law. And if you want to know about the Medrash, which is a whole area which you and I didn't even have time to get into, which is the non-legal part of the Torah, the storyline and all the missing information from the text, the Medrash says in five volumes, all the storyline. And if you want to study Rashi, our most classical commentator, English translation, annotated every word. If you want the whole of Tanakh, the entire scripture and prophets, in over 30 volumes, Rabbi Arya Kaplan authored most of it. And here goes through the storyline of every verse and how to apply the 613 mitzvahs. Today, those whispers are no longer in Aramaic and in Hebrew. It's in our tongue, in our ears. The Mishnah, in pictures, I don't have the article version, and if you want, you can get Hebrew, tutor. If you want the Talmud, every single tractate is on CD. You want Gemara, got Gemara tutor. If you want everything that's been printed, almost, you've got 31 different, the Maimonides, Code of Jewish Law, all on one CD. Amazing. Because we're getting closer to the end and God is giving us the greatest chance to be able to say I had an opportunity. Because if we're able to say God, it was not accessible to me. There was no way I could. I have an answer. God wants to give us the ability to have access to the oral transmission. It was never as accessible as it is today. I'm not saying it's for everyone in this room, but you can call a number anywhere in America which will be free, because it will be local call, and you can choose any page in the Talmud, and you can have it in Yiddish or English, fully explained. And by pressing 4, you can go on pause, or if you want a bookmark, you press 7, or if you want to go a little bit faster, you go press 6, if you want to go a bit slow. Everything. Who's God's number? <laughs> 1-800-ALMIGHTY. Open your mouth. And talk. <laughs> Very good. The bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, Is that, is that if, you, if you want to take what you've gained from this entire seminar and apply and say, you know what, I want to learn more, I want to understand more, I want to become part of that oral transmission. There are many organizations and they're all good. Gateways, call them, they will network you. Wherever you are, they'll find the local organizations closest to you that have classes or lecture series or even a one-to-one learning partner they can arrange it. A Shabbos invitation, or you want a lecture to come out to your community, or you want information about how to buy books in Judaica, call Gateways, they will network you. Today, we can be standing under the chuppah, showing off that ring, that beautiful Torah scroll, which has meaning to us, because we understand the whisper from whom it came from. Thank you for listening.